and welcome to episode 126 of Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast. We are coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein U School of Law, accreditation pending with authorities in Kyrgyzstan. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter and now owner of a big chunk of WeWork. You got to buy low if you want to sell high. And I am joined, as always, by the McGuire and Sosa of the conservative legal movement. And yes, I mean, they're both juicing. They are Richard Epstein, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, senior lecturer at the University of Chicago and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. And John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and former deputy assistant attorney general in the Bush administration. Can I say something? You yes, so, you may. No, you, you may so not. Touch, you're so out of touch with the millennial generation. Okay, when you stipulated, juicing, but why? You say me and Richard are juicing. They think we've got these Vitamixes into which we're pouring <laughs> huge amounts of vegetables and concocting some evil brew to make us healthy. But you actually really nothing could be further from an accurate characterization of John Yu's personal life. You mean juicing in uh, the sense of taking steroids to hit lots of homers. Hell yeah. Favor of because that's right. By the way, both of these guys are derelict characters. So why are you equating us with them? You know, there's only so many duos in the world, gentlemen. (laughs) We've got 120 family. Uh, okay. I mean, no. I mean, also, is P.T. Barnum your moral, your uh, model of moral probity that you Actually, want? Actually, turns be? out to have been a very interesting and complicated guy. So there are at least two sides. I think oh, there was no, a no, long, no, 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 I don't. There's a long piece on him in the New Yorker, one such magazine, which was actually kind of interesting. He did have some ability, God knows what. Uh, but I do not wish to vouch for him. But I think at least nobody remembers what their sins are. Whereas with Sosa and McGuire, well, either of them ever get into the Hall of Fame? What do you think? I, no. Isn't it? No. Although, so, didn't McGuire get a job? McGuire was hired as a manager, or a hitting yes. coach. Was, he's, he's, a hitting, he's a hitting coach. The league. But no, no, stipulated, no asterisks as to either one of either one of your names. By the way, we do, we do need to get to the substance. We've got a limited amount of time. But when last we left you, John, you were on the cusp of your exotic visit to Greece. How did that play out? Oh, it was awesome. Although I found Crete, I hope people don't hate me for this. I found Crete a little bit disappointing. Of beautiful beaches and resort, but you know, I went to the start of the Minoan civilization, Gnosis, which was kind of interesting. Uh, although it had been wiped out by a volcano, there were these gigantic stone blocks which had been reassembled. So I thought that was really interesting until the tour guide said that the blocks are being reassembled by some English adventurer in the beginning of the 20th century. And he just meant, and he put the blocks back together basically the way he thought best. So it was kind of like as if uh, Harris created rocks. Yeah, it was like Harrison Ford and the Raiders of the Lost Ark had kind of built himself a castle. Yeah. <laughs> Disappointing. Delivery. Well, but look, I mean, you have to remember these British entrepreneur types, like the Elgin Marbles and somebody, were the ones who saved all the stuff from ancient Greece from desecration, uh, in part from the Turks. So uh, don't remember that. If you recall when the Parthenon blew up, uh, 15, 1600, whatever it was, do you know why it blew up? It blew up because the Turks were using it as a munitions dump. Right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, right. so, so you know, uh, let us praise uh, the Colonel Blimps of this world because they did a great deal of good um, in terms of what's going on. So uh, two votes for imperialism, not three, but two. I was going to say five minutes in and 
There's an interesting Richard's legal question. on the record in favor of P.T. Barnum and the, and the removal of the Elgin Marbles. I'm actually with him on the Elgin Marbles, but there's an interesting legal issue because what the Greeks did is they built a brand new museum called the Acropolis Museum yes. right next to the Acropolis. And it has a like a modern space that's like a, re, a modernized version of the Parthenon, and they have all the marbles up there because Lord Elgin didn't take all the marbles. He left behind the ones he felt of inferior quality. <laughs> so they have spaces for all the ones in the British Museum. And there's like a little note saying we are reserving these spaces for when the marbles are returned. <laughs> when we get our marbles back in. <laughs> now, the, the, the interesting thing is, I, uh, does Greece have a legal right to demand the marbles back? So you've seen um, – Italy and Greece have been suing different museums around the world, including the Getty Museum in L.A., yes. and they, although I'm not sure what the legal principle is. Well, it, it's John, a little bit of information may here go a long way. Uh, um, never a case, but go ahead. Don't let that bother you, but some of the stuff that was sold was uh, smuggled illicitly out of the countries when it was smuggled out without getting the appropriate permits, and those cases are a lot easier than the Elgin marbles, uh, which were taken when there were no safeguards in place. The other argument is, okay, we didn't have to take them out at that particular point in time. They'd all be destroyed in the present time. Um, I don't think the Elgin marbles are going back anytime as soon. But, you know, I could be wrong. Uh, it might well be that the British and the, the Greek government reach some kind of a deal. You put them there for part of the year. You put them here for another part of the year. That's possible. I don't see uh, what right any of these countries have to get any of the stuff back. Well, John, I mean, that's because, you know, uh, you, you, you're keepers. the true imperialist, John. You're the true imperialist. Yeah, finders keepers. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> that finders keepers. That's a, that's a uh, well-known principle of international law. <laughs> But the, 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 the correct principle is not the finders keepers, which gives the finders protection against the rest of the world, but the finder always has to yield the title to the true owner. And so what you have to do is if they're finders, uh, then they don't have a superior title. And why, do, why didn't the French have to return every painting in the Louvre that Napoleon stole from what? all the Italian? They probably do. I mean, I think those are cases. The true owner dumps the trumps the finder. Um, go back to Henri and Della Marie, the famous case about the stone that the jeweler stole, and you can see the English principles emerging as early as 1721. This is, I think, somewhat off the topic of. I current think it is. Yes, yes. We were, glad we were able to keep but it. But it's. So of extreme interest. We have to get I, John educated. Starts, can't now, hit the gavel on tangents. We're in big trouble. Yeah, exactly right. Hershey, which brings us back to Roman law. We don't, in fact, have we to. Don't well, have we to should go read something up about it. I will just note as we transition to actual topics that for our listeners who don't have the travel budget to make it to Athens, if you would like to see a full-scale replica of the Parthenon, complete with the 40-foot-tall statue of Athena inside, you can find it in Centennial Park in Nashville, Tennessee. No, really? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Centennial Park, Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville once fancied itself the Athens of the South because of the number of institutions uh, of higher education really? that are there. So this was erected for – someone's going to correct me in the uh, comments. Nashville's but a world the Athens barbecue. <laughs> oh, you're going to get a lot of nasty mail from Memphis. All right. So getting on to our actual topics, um, we got we got to start with impeachment. When last we gathered for this show, uh, we were at the very start of this. We had just gotten the news that there was a complaint with the inspector general for the intelligence community community about a potential quid pro quo between uh, President Trump and Ukraine. 
I'll just start with this. Through all the twists and turns of the last month, we could do a whole show just talking about those. Have either of you moved off of your position in that previous conversation, which was, yeah, some of this might not look good. Some of it might even be unsavory, but there is just not enough here to support impeachment. John, I'll start with you. Uh, if I remember what I said, which is many souvlakis ago and euros ago, <laughs> I, I think I said that this Ukraine business um, could fit within a uh, definition of high crimes and misdemeanors, but that we don't have enough facts yet. So let's assume if assume Trump did offer a quid pro quo, just said, you know, I'm just not going to. I'm not going to release this $400 million in military aid unless you launch an investigation into the Bidens. Uh, I think that would qualify as a high crime and misdemeanor. The question is whether to convict. And, and the reason why is because a high crimes and misdemeanors doesn't have to be an actual crime. doesn't have to be a violation of federal law. It could be uh, some situation like this one where a president puts his personal interest above that of the nation. And the founders talked about that. Uh, they talked about cases like Louis the Fourteenth paying off British kings not to intervene in the continental wars and so on. So I think it is of the quality, but I don't think this is enough. Uh, but that's a sense of judgment. Sort of like I don't think a court would want to convict on these kinds of facts. I think the framers would have rather had us go into the election and the American people make their judgment that way in November on whether they disapprove of Trump or not. Richard, how about you? Well, um, it's several things. One, the thing that I'm going to stress is not so much the substance for the moment, but the procedure. And the position that I took the last time was whatever you think the substance of this thing is, uh, you can never, in effect, allow um, unexamined hearsay, double hearsay in this case, to go forward. And what's happened here is there are all sorts of devastating revelations that come out from the lips of Adam Schiff and from his various reports. But the committee is run under a set of rules and confidence that simply defy comprehension. He is allowed to leak whatever he wants selectively. The Republicans are not allowed to say a single word of what's going on there. If he wants to run a confidential investigation, which I think is probably permissible, it has to be that nobody leaks on this, and it has to be that equal rights of cross-examination and access to papers are given to both parties. That's not allowed. So my own short-term situation is, until one has established the pedigree of the things that are released by Schiff, I refuse to take them into account one way or the other. Uh, it could be that all of these are also double hearsay of one form. The other thing which is kind of ironic about all of this um, is that the sort of news seems to be closing around the investigation on the other side about how it was that people either in the Obama administration or the Clinton campaign or some connection of the two of them did try to use their influence in order to persuade the FBI to launch the investigation of what was going on with Trump, and that they did so with people inside the government, which I regard as a much more serious offense than the usual blowhard Trump uh, taking on the other thing. So the last point I would make is the on the substantive side, uh, we have to recognize that the president has a very strong 
power with respect to foreign affairs. We also have to recognize that if there's no quid pro quo in there, that is, they just don't say anything. If you are the president of the United States and you now have information that somebody has a potential conflict of interest because his son has worked for Burzum with a major energy company in the Ukraine, that's a legitimate topic for investigation. It certainly would not be an impeachable offense if he tried to investigate this from the American side. Uh, then the question is, if he can't investigate what's going on in the Ukraine, I don't think it's illegal for him to ask the local government to do that. The whole question then is if you have a legitimate justification and a corrupt motive, which I think the last would qualify for, how it is that you trade those two things off. One possible solution is to go back and look at the impeachment clause, which says you don't have to remove him from office. It says it only could go that far and you could use a lesser sanction, censure or something or other. And perhaps they may cut a deal. At this point, though, I think the Democrats are going to be very, very uneasy about trying to turn this into a formal hearing uh, because they're then going to have to expose their witnesses to rather brutal cross-examination, and they have to be very confident that all those searches are going to hold up. My instinct is that the reason they're keeping them quiet is that they know that these are very tarnished witnesses and that if you start to look at the first rank of hearsay, then at the second rank, not only do you get all the dossiers, but you get a huge amount of stuff to investigate to get contrary information. And I don't see this, this working, at least at this particular point. Mind you, this is said from a position of somebody who doesn't really know what the evidence is. But, you know, I'm a proceduralist on this, and I will not examine evidence which I think is utterly inadmissible uh, because of the way in which it's been put together. John, how about that process point that Richard is making? Because it echoes the complaint that you're hearing from congressional Republicans and the one that the White House itself is actually using to avoid cooperating with a lot of this is that this process is all wrong, that if the Democrats want to do impeachment, they ought to do impeachment, they can call a vote. But instead, they're doing all this committee testimony behind closed doors. And as a result, the versions of this testimony that are most favorable to Democrats are the ones that are leaking out. How much weight do you give to that critique, that there's something fundamentally unfair about this process? You know, that's an interesting question, and there's a difference between what the Constitution requires and what makes good sense, good policy sense. With the Constitution, I don't think that the Senate or the House has any constitutional obligation to give Trump or anyone else any kind of due process or follow any procedures. And I think this was made clear in the Nixon case, again, not the President Nixon, who always loses at the Supreme Court, but Judge Nixon, who's totally unrelated, but still loses because his name is Nixon. So look, Judge Nixon brought a very similar claim to all the way to the Supreme Court, where he said, you know, my trial in the Senate was unconstitutional. I shouldn't be removed, although he'd taken bribes, because I never received a fair hearing in the Senate. And the Supreme Court said, this is interesting, said, the Constitution uses the exact word, quote-unquote, soul, to, to give Senate the power to try and the House the power to impeach. And the court said, because of that, we're not going to review or second-guess any method used by the House or, Senate, House or Senate to perform that function. It's interesting a concurrence there because Justice Souter said, well, what if the Senate have just flipped a coin? <laughs> Isn't that a violation of due process? Shouldn't we at least be able to hear that? And the Chief Justice says, no, we don't, we're not going to review it at all. This is all what the court calls a political question. So because of that, I don't think the House owes any constitutional process of any kind that were reviewed by court. 
On the other hand, this is what I argued in this piece I had in the Washington Post last week. It makes sense for the House, though, to offer the fullest, most transparent process if they really want to win. Because if and this has to do with the Senate, the Senate trial, I think, is a real travesty. There's no real trial. There's no witnesses presented. No documents are brought forward. No credibility question. The senators sit there silently. They just hear speeches from the president's lawyers and from the House managers. And so because of that, the only full airing we're going to ever have of the evidence, the only testing of it, the only alternate arguments, the only debate we'll ever hear about what's a high crime and misdemeanor will take place in the House. So if you're the Democratic majority, you want to actually persuade the American people that President Trump should be removed. You want to have the most open, full-throated process possible in the House. So I think the House is actually being very self-defeating here. The more they pursued these procedures you talk about, Troy, the worse they're going to do, the more it's going to be easy for Trump and his supporters and the American people to conclude the whole thing really was a kangaroo court and a sham trial. Okay, so I'm making you both White House counsel for a day, and, I, and I'm depriving you of the ability to immediately resign. <laughs> What are you telling the president right now about how to navigate this? Richard, I'll start with you. Yeah, what am I going to tell the president on what to do? Well, Richard I would said say, he wanted him to resign on the first day. So. <laughs> yeah, no, no, look, I mean, you know, I'm this odd position is I don't think the case for impeachment is made out. I would dearly love for the president to resign under ordinary circumstances. Understand that he cannot resign under this kind of pressure because it would be treated by everybody as a serious admissions of guilt. I think that the first thing I would do is I would basically hammer on the corruption of the process. And then I would demand that on the Republican side, there'd be an incredibly intensive cross-examination of all of the particular witnesses. One of the things that was discussed in the Nixon case, that is the one that, not about the president, but about the judge, was whether or not you could have a subset of the Senate hear the particular case, uh, allow witnesses to be presented, then give a summary and a report which could send up to the other body, which could then conduct some additional investigation of a limited sort if it thought it wanted to do so. So I think, in effect, that's perfectly appropriate for lesser officials, but it's quite clear to me that in this particular case, if it's the president, it has to be a full trial before the whole Senate. I would also, I think I would want to really press very hard on what the rules of the Senate are going to use. Um, I don't think if this is going to be a case in which you're starting to talk about credibility of witnesses and so forth, uh, that it's appropriate to give each senator five or ten minutes to ask his or her questions and then move on to the next one. I think you actually really do have to do this as much more of a traditional trial in which you uh, give lawyers for both sides pretty powerful um, discretion in terms of the way in which you run examination and cross-examination, and that can take for a very, very long period of time. I do not see how you could run a trial like this, given all the shenanigans that have happened so far in so many different ways, in less than months. I mean, quite literally. So I think once one understands that, uh, what's going to happen is the advice I would give to the Republicans is to go to Mitchell, Mitch McConnell and to tell him, look, you have to run this thing as a, a real trial. You can't use any shortcuts. And this is not an appeal. This is not a case where the facts are admitted and you're trying to figure out whether they wait the situation, which was the case basically in all three impeachments we had to face with, starting with Andrew Johnson going through Nixon and through Clinton. This is something where, in effect, everything that's important has been disputed. And I think it's insane to try to run that kind of process in the middle of an election. I think the Democrats 
Democrats will find it even worse. They don't know who their candidate's going to be, but this swing will suck everybody up and require them to be in attendance. And that's another thing that I would say if I were uh, Mr. McConnell. You're a judge. You can't miss these hearings. Sorry, Ms. Warren, you can't go out and uh, a campaign. You have to sit here. Sorry, all you Republicans, you have to stay as well. If you actually start going through all that stuff and come up with what you think to be a sensible set of protocols, this thing turns out to be completely unworkable. And unless until you get some kind of admissions from wrongdoing, and that's the only time that we had that uh, was with respect to Nixon, where once the tapes were released, Everybody knew what the evidence and what the record was, and it was just a matter of time. Uh, there's no equivalence in this particular situation on the strength of the evidence that we thus have. And so everything here, if they want to go forward, is going to depend upon the ability of the Democrats to find somebody who's not going to be subject to credibility attacks on the one hand and uh, hearsay objections on the other. John, how does that square with the advice that you would give? I actually might even be more aggressive than Richard. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say that every podcast just to get them to make that sound. <laughs> so the, I, this sort of comes out of uh, my sense of how Senate House procedures interact with executive privilege. So if you're uh, Trump, you think this whole investigation's illegitimate. So you, but you have the leverage because the House can't really conduct the process. That Richard's talking about, which with I agree with, you know, that you need to find out what the actual facts were and hear from lots of witnesses and let both sides have at them, right? The the House can't do that unless it gets the cooperation of the executive branch because that the executive branch controls all the witnesses and all the documents. Right now, you're seeing a lot of witnesses who either the White House is just allowing to testify or they are defying White House orders not to testify. So if you were Trump, what you should do, I think, is to get leverage, to get the House to do a fair process, to follow the kind of rules that Richard's talking about. What you should do is uh, order all executive branch officials not to testify or cooperate in any way, even to the point where you might sue them to stop them from appearing in front of Congress. Then Congress would have to issue a subpoena to force them to testify. And then what happened, remember what happened with Eric Holder and Fast and Furious, right? We talked about it on the podcast many years ago. Uh, the House can try to sanction them for refusing to obey a subpoena, but that requires the cooperation of the Justice Department, which it wouldn't give. And so uh, they might be up a creek. The House, I guess, could file a civil lawsuit and try to get these witnesses to appear but this is the interesting thing. The court, remember the Supreme Court has said anything related to impeachment is a political question and we will not review it. If the court holds that, that means Trump, I think, wins. And then the House has to come to some compromise with them to get any cooperation at all. Uh, it's a high risk strategy, but I think it's, it would be well rooted in the president's constitutional authorities versus the House. And it, if, it, if, if, if Trump makes himself the defendant, you know, puts the House in the position of the aggressor, I think he could get all the procedures he wants by stonewalling them. I don't think that's going to work. Um, why, I Richard? Think what, the one thing I think that is going to be clear is that the basic dynamic associated with executive privilege 
will be at an end the moment that this becomes a clear impeachment trial. Um, I think the president is entitled to keep all this stuff when there's a battle between the two branches, but when he himself is in the dock, uh, then it seems to me that whatever privilege he has is going to be forfeited. And if he cannot claim the privilege for himself, I don't think that there's anything that he can do to stop the subpoena power being being issued with respect to his subordinates. So I think that's going to probably be a big battle. What John says is clearly right. If, in fact, the impeachment is over up, then I think there's no judicial intervention. Right now, however, when they're just doing this funny hearing, uh, I do think that the executive privilege issue is very much live. And I think it is quite credible that somebody on the Republican side is subpoenaed by Mr. Schiff and his cronies, can go into court and say, I'm not going to have to answer to what I think is a kangaroo court. And if that particular position is accepted, and I think it would, I think it would bind. But I think that once you know that the chief justice is going to preside over the impeachment hearing, uh, the judicial system is going to be completely out of this case when it comes to privilege. So we're going to have to figure out who's going to rule on this. I assume it would be the, somebody in the Senate that would make this particular decision. But I think on the basis of history and weight, the president is not going to be able to keep that going. On the other hand, um, we have no idea whether or not there are going to be some minimal due process requirements built into the hearing. It would be an outrage if it were not for prudential reasons. And I'm sure that given the delay that is necessarily entailed by fair processes, uh, Mr. Mitch McConnell is going to do that. He is quite right to say that it is not within his power, unlike nominations for various courts, to simply say, I'm not going to hear the case. But it is within his power to figure out how you structure the rules of the game. By the way, did you guys see you made the reference to a kangaroo court, Richard. I don't recall who this was, but the Republican member of Congress who made reference to this as a kangaroo court and thought that was a Captain Kangaroo reference. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great piece of video. Um, well, all right, fellas. So we are on new ground. <laughs> the uh, This being the October show does mean that we've got a new Supreme Court session to consider. And there's a bunch of cases I'm sure we'll be revisiting as they come up. But for now, let's just work through some of the top shelf stuff and you can give us a sense of where you think the court might go and, and where you think it should go. And I want to start with uh, this abortion case out of Louisiana. This is similar to the one that we saw from Texas a few years ago. In both of these cases, you had state law requiring doctors who perform abortions to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. Most of them don't. So this has the practical effect of significantly reducing the supply of, of legal abortionists. In Louisiana, the argument is that this would effectively reduce it to one doctor who could legally perform abortions. Now, when the court heard the case out of Texas, which was in 2016, they struck that law down 5-3, but that was a Kennedy decision in a case where the Scalia seat was still vacant. So you've got a somewhat different court now. Now, uh, John, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I, I think this all goes back to the Casey case, right? In the early 90s, where the, the ruling prohibited states from placing an undue burden yes, on the right to abortion. This so, how do you. Ridiculous undue burden test. Well, so to walk us John, through that. John, how, do you see this, how do you see this playing out? How should it play out? Give us a sense of the context here. So, you could look at it as a matter of sort of pure judicial politics or at the. You know, sort of less partisan uh, matter of doctrine. If you want to look at it, just a matter of pure politics, the Texas case, which involved a statute pretty much similar, if not identical, to the Louisiana statute, the court, as you said, uh, was 5-3. Uh, Justice Scalia was not on the court anymore. 
Uh, Justice Kennedy joined the four liberals to provide the fifth vote. Um, Chief Justice Roberts was in dissent. And you've had the additions since then of Justices uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. If Justice Roberts was just to maintain a consistent position between the Texas case and this case, you would just expect it to go 5-4 and be overruled, uh, and, and for the Texas case to be overruled. Um, and I, and that's actually what I expect would happen. You could look at it at the doctrinal level, and that's why I was sort of moaning about this undue burden test. You know, this undue burden test uh, is sort of typical of these kinds of areas of law where it's so mushy and malleable, you can't really tell what it means beforehand. You can barely tell what it means afterwards. Uh, and I think it's a kind of vehicle that the court uses often just to give it space to reach the political result it wants. Whether you're for abortion or against abortion, you'd want to get rid of this test. The only reason the test exists is because it was created by Justice O'Connor. And then after she left, the, she was the fifth vote on these cases. And then Justice Kennedy kind of picked it up when he became the fifth vote on these cases because they like that kind of flexibility, I think. But here's a good example. What is an undue burden? Is this an undue burden? Do you look at it in terms of the intention of the legislature when they pass the bill? Or do you look at its sort of consequences uh, regardless of the intention of the legislature? Here the legislature say, and the court below here, the, it's the same court actually that heard the Texas case, the Fifth Circuit, said, uh, we do think there is a valid medical reason uh, behind the statute that is not about trying to restrict uh, the, right, the abortion right, but is about properly regulating the medical profession. Is that enough or not to survive review, even though it has, as you said, Troy, the effect of reducing the number of physicians who can actually carry out abortion in Louisiana to zero? I mean, suppose there were no law at all. This is a hypothetical I asked in class. Suppose there's no law at all, but the social stigma uh, on doctors who perform abortions is so great in Louisiana that all the doctors leave who do abortions. Does the state have to then start importing people to conduct Abortions, is that an undue burden? This is a problem with the undue burden test. So I expect the court will not only overturn the earlier case five to four and uphold Louisiana's law, I think they're going to get rid of this undue burden test and replace it with something that's much more principled. Well, I don't know what more principled is, but I actually was in the strange position when we had with the woman's health care case. Um, I have been from the very beginning a strong opponent of Roe v. Wade and wrote back as far ago as 1973 now one of the articles that had been most critical of that case uh, because of the way in which I think it was wrong on substantive grounds. But when you got to the woman's health situation, the issue is not, I think, um, whether abortion is or is not something that should be legal, that is to overrule Roe. The question here is about what kinds of things you can do. John doesn't want to use an undue burden test. I don't know what other kind of test you could possibly use. Uh, I can't believe that the test is too great in principle because if you look at the fourth 14th Amendment, and you start talking about the kind of process issues there, uh, the phrase that they use is, nor shall any person be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due stress, underline, and so forth, uh, process of law. So at this point, what do you do there? Well, you have to weigh. Can you weigh these things? I think the answer is yes. So 
let's indicate one of these situations. Suppose you're trying to figure out whether this is a safety situation, and you know that an abortion is a procedure is less dangerous than many other procedures. Then what you discover is the kinds of requirements that you put in the abortion situation are more stiff than those for other procedures. The inverse ratio seems to me to say that it's going to be undue. If you then look at the number of hospitals that have been closed down, one of the things that I think you can do in order to show that the burden would be undue is to ask about the safety rates that you see in those hospitals with respect to abortion. And if it turns out that there are no adverse events of any significance that come out for what is a morally controversially but technically relatively same kind of thing, then I think in effect what you can say is that this is undue. If you look at other kinds of states and see the way in which they start to do it, uh, can you find many states that essentially adopt this position? And if so, whether they adopt it for the correct reasons. When I looked at the women's health care case, I was surprised that it wasn't unanimous the other way, because frankly, given the fact that you're knocking out abortion care for virtually everybody within the state, leaving at most one clinic open, uh, that seems to me to be a de facto ban, and the standard of justification is going to be a little bit higher than might have otherwise been the case. So I'm pretty confident that when you start doing this, and you're looking at the Kavanaugh and the Gorsuch case, the question I'm not asking is whether they're pro or anti-abortion. The question I'm answering is whether or not they can separate the second-tier question of undue burden from the first-tier question of revisiting Roe. And if they can, I would think that they would probably vote to strike the statute down. I, who am a very strong opponent of Roe and never to be within a thousand miles of a Supreme Court seat anywhere at any time for any reason, I would, I think, probably vote to strike down the Louisiana statute. All right. Move you on to the next one. Uh, people who are administrative state watchers will appreciate the fact that there is a case before the court involving the structure of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which may sound obscure, although probably not to our audience, but just hear us out on this one. So the CFPB is a creation of the Dodd-Frank law. It's an independent agency that is supposed to do well, what the name says, consumer protection in the financial sector. What's at issue here is its structure. The CFPB has a director, and according to the authorizing statute, I'll just read you the quote here, the president may remove the director for inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. So in other words, only for cause. So you have an agency housed within the executive branch where the president is by statute powerless to remove the chief executive for policy reasons, even though that executive is serving in the executive branch. The Trump administration thinks that's unconstitutional. That resulted in this incredible vignette where the White House said that they were giving Mick Mulvaney, who apparently does two out of every three jobs in the executive branch, the, the, <laughs> the, they were giving him the reins of the CFPB while the incumbent director was still in the building <laughs> refusing to leave. So, um, John, I'll start with you. Parse this for us. Is the structure of the CFPB unconstitutional? It is a great question. As you say, administrative law and separation of powers, junkies will love it. But it's also extremely important as to consequences because the CFPB it might be, along with Obamacare, the two largest expansions of the administrative state that happened under Obama, if this goes down, all these regulations and enforcement actions by the CFPB, like regulating credit cards, right? You know, the CFPB thinks it can regulate basically any cons any consumer finance transaction in the country, auto loans, homeless, go on and on. 
will strike down a lot of expansion of the Ministry of State. I think it's unconstitutional, but I also have to say the court has never decided a case like this because this kind of creature that uh, was created by Congress has never existed before. As you say, the uh, statute provides what we call for-cause protection for the head of the CFPB, the director currently held by uh, Mr. Mulvaney. Usually, uh, those protections are given to members of a multi-member board, like the FCC commissioners or the F, you know, FEC commissioners and so on. Uh, I don't think there exists, actually, uh, an administrative body with the powers of the CFPB where that protection is given to one person who governs the agency by himself, has no board to report to, and this is, makes it even more acute, is not does not draw his funds from uh, congressional appropriations, Yes, actually gets all the money from the Fed and from its own fines and revenues. So the amazing thing is, is that this is, might be the most independent <laughs> uh, agent in the entire federal government uh, who's, you know, who's protected from executive control and legislative control. Now, the, but the other thing is I can't point you to a specific case that says this is unconstitutional because we've never seen a creature like this before. But I think it's a violation. Uh, although I, I think most of these commissions are violations. I don't think – personally, I don't think any uh, executive branch officer – can be protected by four-cause provisions, even though the Supreme Court upheld it. And that one case where it upheld it was the independent counsel, and look at all the trouble that caused. So I think I've been proven right about that point, and I think this case presents a great opportunity for the Supreme Court to start returning our Constitution's separation powers back to the original vision and uh, getting rid of slaying this creature that came out of the depths of the Obama Congress <laughs> and putting it back where it belongs. So, Richard, I, I want you to respond to any and all of those points that you want to, but I, I want you to start you with this because John just raised it there a, a moment ago, or at least a related point. There was a piece at Vox about this case warning about the potential malign effects of what, by their lights, would be an adverse ruling here, where Ian Milheiser wrote – I want to read you the quote – there is a chance, albeit a very small one – the Supreme Court could strike down the CFPB in its entirety, there's a somewhat greater chance that the Supreme Court could disallow, quote unquote, independent agencies in which the leaders of those agencies are protected against removal by the president. President Trump, in other words, could gain the power to fire members of the Federal Reserve Board who refuse to inject steroids into the economy while Trump is running for reelection. How should we think about that claim and more broadly about how independent agencies do and don't fit into the constitutional architecture? Well, first of all, I think there's zero chance that what they will do is reverse cases like Humphrey's estate, which essentially said that there are certain high level officials that can be insulated by four cause provisions from removal. Um, uh, this is not a court that's going to do that. The chief justice doesn't believe in it. I think the really important feature is the way in which this case was actually argued when it wasn't in the Fifth Circuit, but it was in the District of Columbia Circuit Court, where a lad named Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote an opinion which says, um, if you wish to give these people insulated power, what you must do is to make sure that they have shared power. You cannot put that kind of power in one person, give them a total budget on the one hand, a term of years 
which lasts five years, so that, i.e., it goes necessarily into the next president's term, that all of this simply concentrates too much into the hands of one person. I think that's the argument that was rejected by Judge Pollard, I think it was, and when she overturned him on an unbanked uh, position. And I thought that that was a particularly weak opinion because it was, oh, my God, the administrative state is so complicated that we just have to abide whatever they're going to do, no matter how obnoxious it starts to think. So I think it's going to be a very narrow opinion, and I think what they're going to constantly stress under these circumstances is excessive independence, excessive power, and that is concentrated into the hands of a single individual can't do it. And if I'm not mistaken, this is about the federal housing stuff, right, and the Fannie Freddie statute. Um, you do not want to give that kind of power to any single sort of person. So I think it's going to be struck down. I think it's going to be on that ground. Uh, but I don't believe that they're going to take headlong on the administrative state. Indeed, when I wrote my little book, which the Manhattan Institute is putting out on this sort of the dubious morality of the modern administrative state, um, the PHH case and that whole line of authority was one of the things that I targeted. Uh, but I don't target it with the kind of broad brush that much more called John does. I think about 85 years have passed since the Humphreys executive case, and that the basic tenor that we're going to see in all of these circumstances is the large state of the you know, independent agencies are going to survive, but what may not survive, I think, are going to be the kinds of deference. I think that hour was largely trimmed to death last term, and I don't see its returning in the Kaiser case. And I also think that Chevron is going to be up for some very close review, and that deference is going to be cut down. And conversely, on matters of fact, I think, strangely enough, you'll probably give a little bit more discretion to agencies. So I think there are going to be really major changes about how these things are operated. I don't see any chance that what they're going to do is basically strike down the administrative state in its entirety and get rid of the Administrative Procedure Act. Last thing from the Supreme Court, a trio of cases that are getting a lot of ink already. There are two cases involving employees who say that they were fired from their jobs because they were gay, a third one involving someone who says they were fired for being trans. And these plaintiffs are all appealing to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and its prohibition on sex discrimination. And one side of the argument is that sexual orientation or gender identity are not identical categories to sex discrimination. But the other side of it is that, well, they're sort of inseparable from the sex question. So it'd be artificially narrow to think that they should be excluded here. Uh, Richard, walk us through how we should think about these cases. Oh, my God. Uh, look, the first thing I'm going to say <laughs> is that this thing came up in a case involving uh, Gloucester County in the Fourth Circuit. And this was a decision which was draped in deference based upon the Hour case, which says that the federal courts will defer to an interpretation of an agency statute given by an agency. And it was one of the worst opinions I think I've ever run, uh, saying that, well, we really think that this was a matter of what the statute read. And uh, we know that there's a lot of other stuff on this, but there's just enough ambiguity here that we're going to sustain them. I did go back and looked at the principal briefs on this, and nobody mentions our. Everything comes as a straight matter of statutory interpretation. And there are two ways that you can think about that. One is a kind of an intentionalist situation. Put yourself back in the 
climate of the times and ask yourself how it was if those people with their attitude would respond to this question as it's raised. And there was a huge problem of just getting sex built into the statue where sex men sex. I think the idea that you could somehow or other force upon these dead legislators the notion that all these fancy associations with respect to either sexual orientation, which is mildly plausible, and transgender operations, which is not, I think it's simply outside and beyond the pale. I would be fairly insistent on this case, and I did write something for SCOTUS on this, uh, that at this particular point, whatever you think about any of this stuff, uh, this is a big enough change and a large enough transformation that it should not be done by judicial interpretation. It should be done by explicit legislation. And I still believe that that's the right situation. Uh, people start saying, oh, my God, it really is a matter of gender identity. But then there's the really crazy notion that somehow the biological sex, which everybody referred to, is not relevant. And gender identity is. In some of these cases, like when you're dealing with people who have gender dysphoria and other kinds of ailments, I think all sorts of accommodations are appropriate, not required by the statute, but appropriate nonetheless. But I think when boys want to declare themselves girls to ruin female athletic competitions in similar situations, the thought that that should ever be done by legislation or otherwise I find simply incomprehensible. It utterly destroys women's athletics. Every single international body that has to deal with sex and uh, transfers back and forth has rigorous tests to make sure that men don't smuggle themselves into women. Nobody cares if a woman tries to smuggle herself into a men's event because they know it's not going to matter. And I think in effect that knowing what the world is on this particular issue and how everybody responds. If you want this to be done, Congress has to do it. And frankly, if Congress did that, I think it's sufficiently twisted that somebody might be able to dream up a sensible constitutional objection to that. So I think when you get the Gorsuch and the Kavanaugh's and the Roberts, I think that the conservative five are going to be absolutely as one. I'm not sure what the liberals are going to do on this question. It's it's kind of complicated, and we're going to have to figure it out. So I think at least 5-4, and it could be 6-3 or even 7-2. Uh, I think that uh, Ginsburg and the Sotomayor are going to vote for the fashionable side. I think uh, Breyer and Kagan are not so sure. It's possible that you'll get different results on the transgender issue than you will on the sexual orientation issue. It's an easier stretch on sexual orientation and on the other, less transformative. Uh, but I think in effect that they're not going to uh, go beyond, they're gonna write a relatively short opinion and a very elaborate and long dissent going the other way. John, as someone who lives in Berkeley, California, where being trans is maybe the single biggest leg up you can have in the application process, how do you think about that? <laughs> I, I I agree with Richard. I don't have any deep thoughts on okay. this one, although you you got me thinking about how many people in Berkeley have more than two legs. I don't know. I just <laughs> I I think uh, I just think that if you look at the history and the passage of the statute, there's just no way that members of Congress in 1964 would have thought that we're extending you know protection against discrimination to gender identity or sexual orientation. They probably, a lot of them, didn't even know there were such things as differences in sexual orientation or gender identity. So I, I just think this is one of those cases where uh, the statute's pretty clear in terms of its text. The, of Congress would not have held a different understanding. And if people, look, if people want to extend discrimination protections to these other classes, which is perfectly fine with me, they should just amend the law to do it, which they easily can. All right, gentlemen. So as we close, our producer has been begging us to the point of desperation all week 
to discuss something said in court by one of the president's lawyers. So there is this case, which we've talked about before. It's now at the appellate level over whether uh, New York state prosecutors could enforce a subpoena for President Trump's tax returns. This is both personal and corporate. And the president's lawyers have been arguing that as president, he's immune from criminal investigation, that this is what the impeachment power is for. And, and short of that, you can't touch him. So the DA's office raises this in the courtroom and says, well, what if Trump actually carried out that bit of hyperbole from the campaign trail? What if he actually shot someone on Fifth Avenue? Would he be immune to any immediate consequences for that outside of impeachment? And later on, one of the judges raises this with Trump's lawyer. And he asks, I'll read you the transcript here. Local authorities couldn't investigate. They couldn't do anything about it. Nothing could be done. That's your position. And William Consovoy, Trump's lawyer, that is correct. That is correct. So Scott Emmergut, Law Talk producer extraordinaire, and Bon Vivant puts it to the two of you. Can the president of the United States actually shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and suffer no legal consequences absent impeachment? John, I'll start with you. No. Are we starting with John? <laughs> no, no. But if it was on First Avenue, it'd be fine because there's already too much crime there. Just kidding. I, yeah, I, I think uh, the president's lawyer, uh, personal, is a really good lawyer, fine lawyer, Will Consovoy, and I understand why he has to take this position because he wants to prevent a parade of horribles or slippery slope. But I think the answer is wrong, and I think it's already foreclosed by Clinton versus Jones. You know, Clinton versus Jones case held that President Clinton could not claim an immunity from a sexual sexual harassment lawsuit by Paula Jones for conduct that had occurred before he was president. So that and the case makes very clear there you know even though the presidency is unique amongst our government branches because the there's a single person who's the head of the branch so the branches the presidency and the person are the same thing but the court was really clear you distinguish our law distinguishes between what the president does as an officer of the government and what the president does as a private citizen. Uh, the Trump argument, which has been made by, you know, not much by Clinton, but was originally made by Thomas Jefferson, actually, uh, that the person of the presidency, the person of who is the president and the office somehow merge and that that individual gets all these protections. It just doesn't fly. So I just think it's quite clear if the president does something in his private capacity, he is subject to the full authority of the law, just like any other private citizen. And I think in the end, he's going to have to turn over these uh, these tax returns. It may take a while. It may not be till uh, after the election, but he's going to he is going to have to turn over those tax returns sooner or later. Yes. Well, I think the key question is: Is it sooner or is it later? The Clinton case was one that simply said that you could run a deposition with respect to the president at that time. I thought that case was completely wrong. I believe devastated um, that depositions could be utterly devastating as they proved in that illustration. I think that the proper response under these circumstances is as follows, to say that you can essentially collect whatever document evidence that you want on the president. You can prepare whatever questions you want. You may be able to even take testimony from other witnesses, uh, but you can't do anything. The president, on the other hand, once he's out of office, has to answer to all of these things uh, because at that point there's no interference with official duties. So in this particular case, um, the first thing that I would have said slightly different from Consovoy is there's absolutely nothing that presidential immunity does uh, which prevents an investigation of the crime. 
Uh, so that what happens is you could get your witnesses, you could take their testimony, you could preserve their records, you could put them on tape. Uh, what you cannot do, I think, is to indict the president at this particular point in time or to sue him. What happens is now that you've got all this stuff preserved, you also get the benefit that all statutes of limitations are waived. And the second he's out of office, you could land on him with a ton of bricks, including even the murder on Fifth Avenue hypothetical. And I think that these things are more. I think it's wrong, as John has suggested, or at least I strongly disagree with the notion uh, that you could go after the president for anything which is not related to his official duties. Uh, the president gets drunk and he's now on a driving offense. Can you basically put him in jail because this is private, not public? No, I think so long as he's in office, he is insulated from just about everything. But after he leaves office, he can be exposed for anything. But I don't think it simply says that the rule of law requires that the public officials do nothing. I think what it does require is that they not require any particular actions of the president. So they can gather all the stuff they want from other people about what's going on with respect to Trump's tax returns. I don't think they could get it. I'm kind of appalled at the situation. I don't think they could get the president to be murdered somebody on Fifth Avenue. Uh, but I do think that they can get the record altogether. And oh, by the way, the other thing that we have to consider is, is this going to apply only on the civil criminal side, on the, on the civil side, federal or state, in order for this thing to work under principles of federalism? It is too big a loophole to allow any state to initiate any kind of action against the president. Now, the last point I would make is, um, how long are you going to have to wait if the president does do this? Well, murdering somebody on this struggle street is a high crime. You don't even have to worry about the misdemeanor part of this. I think you get a pretty quick trial. And so what you're talking about here is not a president who's going to go free for four more years or eight more years. It's somebody who's going to have a couple of weeks before he has to pay the price. And so I do not think Consovoy gave the right answer. The right answer is to say, yes, there is an immunity from prosecution at this particular point in time. But if you think that makes the president somebody who's outside the sanctions of the criminal or civil law, think again. There are too many other ways in which you can move immediately and too many other things that you could do after he leaves office for you to come up with the conclusion uh, that this guy is going to be a free wheeler. But I'm against any prosecution of the president for anything during his term of office. I'm even against the deposition. But I think anything that does not involve his cooperation may be well undertaken at that particular point in time. Is this a violation of the rule of law? Not if it's authorized by the rule of law. Do I, if I were doing this myself, would I do it in a different fashion? Well, I might be willing to exempt mass murder from this particular prohibition, but I would want to do it specifically. And there's nothing in our Constitution that allows for you to make the needed uh, differentiations. By the way, there is a precedent within hailing distance of Richard's drunk driving example, which is that Ulysses S. Grant was actually arrested while he was president for speeding in Washington, D.C. Really? For what? Uh, for for speed for speed he was actually stopped by cops one oh, day but there was no speed chastised for go chastised for going too quickly in his carriage Ah. And then and then the next day was caught doing it again and was and was arrested. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. Well, that is our show. Thanks to both of you as always. Thanks to our producer Scott Immergut, to the Hoover Institution, and of course, thanks to our great listeners. Remember to help us out by rating the show at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon. Until then, the faculty lounge is officially closed. We didn't do the baseball. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.